So Exodus 3, a little background. The Hebrews, God's people, the Hebrews have been in Egypt for about 400 years. It's a long time. They entered Egypt 400 years earlier than Exodus 3. And there were 66 souls. Whoa, what was that? 66. (laughs) 66 folks. Actually, 70 if you want to count Joseph, his wife, and the two kids that were already in Egypt. 66 souls 400 years earlier. Now, 400 years later, two, three million people. God had blessed them. God had blessed them. 400 years is a long time. It doesn't mean a lot to me when I say 400 years ago. 400 years ago this year, 1620, pilgrims left on the Mayflower. That's 400 years. To the new world, 102 pilgrims. I think 30 crewmen heading to the new world. Didn't have a name for it. We have a name for it. That was 400 years ago. They were in Egypt a long time. And life had become very difficult for them when they had first gone to Egypt, Pharaoh was their friend because Joseph was a hero. And so they were heroes. They were the hero's family coming to Egypt. It was awesome. And Pharaoh had given them property. Goshen, remember? He had given them Goshen, given the best part of Egypt. Now, 400 years later, they had become the property of Pharaoh. Big difference. Pharaohs had given them property, now they had become property. Poorly treated. Merciful. It's just terrible the way they've been treated. And we've studied and talked about those things. So Moses, where we're going to pick it up in Exodus 3, he's 80 years old. His first 40 years in Egypt. His second 40 years in Midian. And Midian is not a, not a place you want to go to. Midian is not the place you can take a vacation. Midian is dry and desert and difficult. 40 years, a shepherd in Midian. Exodus 1 takes 400 years to accomplish. Exodus 2 takes 40 years to accomplish. And this chapter is going to take about four minutes for God to do what he needed to do. How long can a bush talk, right? I can talk a lot more about the bush than the bush is going to talk. So I'm going to talk about 30 minutes, but the bush probably got it all done. God got it all done in about four minutes. So, and Matt gave an overview of Exodus a few weeks back. He mentioned that Exodus is a story of redemption. It's a story of redemption. And that God's presence is going to be personally experienced in a very personal way. And that's going to happen right here in this chapter. It's the chapter that all changes. It's the chapter that big stuff gets initiated that's going to affect the Hebrews forever. So Moses is going to experience God in this chapter in a way he hadn't, couldn't have imagined, and I hope you do too. That's my hope, that you experience God in a way you haven't imagined either. That would be my goal. So let's look at the first six verses. I kind of broke it up into four little chunks. It's not a lot of verses to cover. There's only 22 verses in the whole chapter, praise God. Um, some of those chapters in Luke, you just look at it, you go, okay, 70 verses, 10 subchapters, sub subtitles. Oh, how can these things be like Nicodemus said? So this is so much nicer. First six verses, Exodus 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock 
he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He was afraid to look at God. Jethro is his father-in-law. In in an earlier chapter, he's called Ruel. That's probably his actual name. Moses' father-in-law is actually, his name would be Ruel. But Jethro is a title. Like our president is Donald Trump, but he's called what? Mr. Mr. President. He has a title. Mr. President came from George Washington, by the way. They didn't know what to call him. They didn't want to use the king. That would be kind of awkward. So he actually said, this is what I want you to call me, Mr. President. George Washington, you can thank him for that. So Jethro is a title. It means prince or priest. So Jethro is his title, Mr. President. Okay. The angel of the Lord spoken of is not like Gabriel. It's not like Michael, the archangel. Who knows, who knows what the angel of the Lord is? It's, it's God. It's actually God, full on God, called the angel of the Lord. You'll see that throughout the Bible. And then maybe just a quick note on verse six. It's interesting when God introduces himself to Moses, when the angel of the Lord introduces himself to Moses, he doesn't say, hey, Moses, I'm your God. It's interesting to me. He said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he doesn't say I'm your God. We have no idea whose God Moses was. We see how it turns out. We go, oh, well, it turns out good. Moses is a rock star. He's a hero, and he is. But at this point, he might have had many gods. He might have been very comfortable with the gods of his father-in-law, Jethro. No idea what Moses believed as far as God goes or gods. So I want to talk about a few little themes in this little section. First one's retirement. He's 80 years old, folks. I don't know. I'm 63. I know I look 43. I know it. (laughs) I know it. And I think my body sometimes, I feel like I'm 43 until I actually try to do something hard and then it feels like I'm 73. But but I'm kind of coming up on that, you know, that 60s retirement thing, like something about Social Security. Do I get it at 62? Do I get it at 66? What am I going to be doing when I'm 80? I think, well, I might be in the desert, like Palm Desert, you know, or <laughs> Arizona somewhere, Yuma. I, I, I think the desert could work for an 80-year-old. But the, the, the weird thing about our faith, not weird is that do you ever retire from being a believer? Because I've seen some believers retire early. <laughs> really early. They wait till 80 or 70 or 60. <laughs> they retired at, as far as I can see, at about 20, 25, 30. I've seen lots of, re- lots of believers retire early. 
It's not the way it should be. You know, Dick Bowden, where's Dick Bowden? Right there, 84. He is a rock star at Edgewater. 84. Teaches almost every Friday, the young at heart over at the office. That's probably a 45, I don't know, 50, 50, I don't know, 45, 50 minute teaching. I'm doing that. It takes a lot of work. 84 years old. He's getting after it for the kingdom and for the king. Dick Worthington, 75. Where's he? In Africa right now. Trying to keep up with some people that are way younger than him. You know, love him. Great marriage counselor. 75, he's not done. I know you can retire from work, I get it. You can retire from your occupation. I have no problem with that, but I don't know if we retire from ministry. It'd be nice if we had the mindset we retire from work to be able to do ministry. That would be awesome. That'd be a healthy perspective. But I don't know, retiring, I don't know. You have to work that through in your own heart. The second thing I want to talk about this section is the phrase, here I am. It's very important. Here I am. Now, when, when Moses said, here I am, he was honestly probably just saying to God, here's my location. Yeah, I'm here. Like the teacher says, Moses, are you here? Like, Moses, Moses, I'm here. I'm here, teacher. It's kind of that kind of a here I am. And we could just pass over that if, if, we, were, if we were not paying attention, but the phrase here I am is really important in the Bible. You want to know, you want to know some great people that said here I am? Some great people. And they were asked to do something. When they said here I am, they were asked to do something very, very difficult right after they said those words. Abraham said to God, here I am. Same words as Moses. What was he asked to do when he said here I am? God said, I want you to take your only son, Isaac. And I want you to, 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 to basically kill him on an altar. Oh. Jacob said, here I am. And God said, okay, Jacob, I want you to leave Canaan, this place that you've been your whole life, and I want you to go to Egypt. Uh, uh, I don't want that was his command from God. Moses, we're going to read about it in a second. Here I am. What's he going to do? He's going to, he's going to leave Midian and go back to where? Egypt. Where, when he left, remember, 40 years earlier, he was a murderer. Pharaoh was trying to kill him. That's awkward. Samuel said, here I am. In 1 Samuel 3, 4, what was God's command? He said, here I am. God said to little Samuel, he says, tell Eli, the priest, that his two sons, bad priest, I'm going to take them out. Go tell dad that I'm going to take out his sons. Hard. Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 8, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Okay, I want you to tell your nation that they are going to get worked over for years. They're going to, they're going to have to pay for their sinfulness. Tough message. One of the last, maybe the last here I am, Ananias, New Testament. He's in Damascus. He's a Christian. Saul Evil Saul, who would become good Paul, but still evil Saul was coming to Damascus to, to kill. To find peace, people like Ananias, just like him, and take him back to Jerusalem and punish him for being a Christian. Hey, Ananias, here I am. Uh, what do you want? I should go. Go find Saul. Lay your hands on him. Well, he's going to lay his hands on me, right? No, I want you to lay your hands on him and heal him. He's blind. All the here I am's were followed with difficult things, really hard things. But here's the great news. 
God got all those people through all those hard things and they had an adventure. They had an adventure. When you say, here I am, and when that's your heart attitude, God, God will put you on assignment and it won't always be easy. In fact, it will probably be difficult. But heart's not bad. We know that around Edgewater, right? Heart's not bad. And when you take a here I am attitude and you, you, you combine it with the I am, when here I am meets I am, the I am, man, that's when the adventure begins. That is when the adventure begins. Christianity is an adventure. It's supposed to be an adventure. These guys all had adventures, had amazing stories. We're still talking about them today. God wants to have an adventure with you, but you have to say, your part is here I am, I'm in, I'm all in. First Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. See, we shouldn't need, Christians, us, we, believers, shouldn't need a dream. We shouldn't need a burning bush to get us to say, here I am. The Bible says we're already supposed to be in. We've been bought. We've been bought. We're no longer our own. You know, you can go to work tomorrow and your boss can buy you. He'll buy you for eight hours. That's what he's going to do. He's going to buy you for eight hours. We've been bought with a price. But what you do when you're there matters. Because if you're not in, if you're not into it, he doesn't have much he's buying. He might have a body, but he doesn't have your mind. When you're, when you're in, when you go to work and you're in, when here I am, I'm here, you do the work. Your mind's there, your body's there, and great stuff can happen. You get good stuff happening. And then the last theme from these first six verses or so Super important theme. It's the holiness of God. The holiness of God. See, what, what happens is in verse six, we see Moses, he's standing on what, what kind of ground was it? Holy ground. Take off your shoes. It's holy ground. And the next thing he sees, he's on his face before a holy God. Do we know, do you know, do I know, do we know really what it means in 2020, to approach God in holiness. Does any of us even think about that? Do we know what that means? It meant something to Moses. His whole posture changed. Everything changed. And I think part of the problem that we have in the year that, in the, in the age that we live in within the church, within Christianity, is we love the Jesus God. We love the Son of Man, the friend of sinners. Love him. Just love the way he rolls. Yeah, like that. But you didn't see a lot of people falling down in front of Jesus. Some did, if they're healed. Most people just liked being with him. He was a friend of sinners. A.W. Tozier, one of my favorite people, one of my favorite authors, I should say. Um, If you want to get a great little book, it's not an easy read, but it's a great read. And it's a super small book with super small chapters. It's called um, The Knowledge of the Holy. He wrote it in 1961. He died in 1963. And this is what he said on the preface. It's probably behind me now. This is what he said in the preface of his book, 
the knowledge of the holy. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and is substituted for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. Listen to this. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our Christian thinking. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in the middle period of the 20th century. We're heading towards the middle of the 21st century. We're 60 years after he wrote this. If it was a problem then, it's more of a problem now. The challenge, I think, and this isn't a great illustration, but I play guitar, is that we, 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 we tend towards the Son of Man because he's more like us. He walked, he, he healed, he was a friend, he died. That's human stuff, the Son of Man. So we kind of relate to the Son of Man. We like Jesus. But he's also what? The Son of, son of God. He's eternal. God's immutable. God's omnipotent, omnipresent, sovereign, transcendent. He's all those things. And, and on a guitar, <clears throat> when you want it to sound right, you have to tune it. And there's just, there's just two solid ends. There's this, this, this end and there's this. And this end has a tuning peg. And, and, and when you tune the tension on the string, it creates a certain sound that you're after. When you get all those you know, strings tuned, um, E, A, D, G, B, E, I think... When you tune them right, you can play something beautiful. That's the way of your faith. If it's only, you've got to take the tension and you'll never get rid of it. Don't try. Tune the tension. Figure out how to tune the tension in your head that he's the son of man, but he's the son of God. If you're one-sided, it'll, Christian, it, it'll, God will always be so fuzzy to you. He's going to be fuzzy if you're tuned even, but... You've got to tune in your head. You've got to keep him the son of God. You cannot get rid of that. Yes, we, we gravitate towards the son of man because we understand that a little bit better. But you have, to tune, you have to tune between those two absolute solid pieces. And if you can tune that in your head and keep them both, you can create something that's, that is beautiful, a, good, a beautiful theology about who God is. Does that make sense? It's just maybe it's because I'm a guitar player, but I think in those terms. Theology is a tuned tension of truth. You, sometimes you have truths that seem opposite, but they're probably both true. You just have to tune it in your head to where, yeah, that makes sense to me. I think that's really important. Let's look at the next few verses, starting in verse seven. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to the land, to, a, <clears throat> to that land, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Termites, and the Jebusites. 
And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he, God said, but I will be with you. It's always a key in scripture as an underliner. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So I want to talk just for a second about groaning versus praying, crying out to God. Groaning, if you look back just before we started in chapter three, at the last part of chapter two, you'll see this verse, Exodus 2.23. Listen to this. During those, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. Groaning is very human. We all groan. We just do. But the burning bush was not ignited by groaning. (laughs) The burning bush was ignited by prayer. Prayer ignited the bush. Prayer ignited the bush. And when I look at the world, when you look at the world, I, I get why the world groans. I get it. CNN is just a groan. Fox is just a groan. It's just groaning. I read the newspaper, just groaning. It was just groaning. The world. I get it. I get it. That's all the world can do. They can just groan. And that's what the Hebrews were doing too for probably a long time until finally their cry came up to God. They started praying. And it probably didn't sound like a prayer like we would pray. It was just a real gut crying out to God to rescue them. That God heard the prayer. And I'm not saying he doesn't hear our groanings. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he cares about our groanings. But we're not called to groan, folks. Called to pray. Prayer changes things. I'm not sure if groaning does or not. I haven't found that verse. It might. But I know prayer changes things. So are you a groaner? (laughs) Are you a prayer? Because they're not the same. They're close, but they're not the same. If we prayed more and groaned less, you'd probably be surprised what could happen in your world. It's just easy to groan because everybody around us is groaning about something, griping and groaning. And if focused on gratitude more and less on groaning, that would also do wonders too. And don't be a groaner, be a prayer. Cry out to God. He'll hear your groans, but I... And, and I'm not saying he won't respond to them because he, he, I'm sure he does. But I know his first response is to prayer. Just cry out to God. Don't be a groaner. We should not look like groaners. We should be prayers. I hear too many Christians just groaning through life. I'm going, you sound, as, you sound so much like the world. Don't we have somebody we can talk to about these problems who can do things? He's God. Don't we? I think we should. I think we do. The second theme from this little section, I just call it spiritual partnership. Um, I can just, I probably just make it up in my head because I like to have little picture stuff in my head, but I'm seeing the section we just read and I'm, and I'm seeing verse seven and I'm seeing Moses' head just going, yeah, this is good. This is good. 
I see him, God said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know they're suffering. Moses going, yes. He may be down low, but he's going, yes. I like. And then the next verse, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them out of the good land. And Moses going, yes. And then the ninth verse, Moses is all in. And now behold, the cry of the people has come to me. And I've seen the oppression. And then he gets to verse 10. And it's like, what are you saying to me? I'm 80-year-old shepherd. 40 years ago, they're trying to kill me. Why are you bringing me into this? If I was Moses, you know what I would say? You take this talking bush to Pharaoh and you're going to get anything you want. And you know what? He would. You take the talking bush, take the talking bush, go. Go to Pharaoh, go. But God says to Moses, I'd rather take the talking man. Hmm. If I was Moses, I'd say to God, you go deliver my people and I'll hang out right here because you said they're going to come back here. I'll get things ready, have the hors d'oeuvres on. We'll get things looking good. The campfire will be going. I'll be here. God says, let's go together because we're a team, Moses. You know what, folks? And if you think about it much, you're God's favorite teammate. You're on God's team. I don't know if you know that. God has you on his team, but are you on God's team, I should say? Are you on the team? God is so into team. The dream works through teamwork with God. The dream works through teamwork with God. And you're on his team. You and God are a team. In fact, he is such a teammate that he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's how much of a teammate I am. I'm never going to leave you. I am that friend that sticks closer than a brother, God would say. I am totally into what we're going to do together in life. But the, the challenge comes in our thinking. We want God to work for us, help us. And God says, I want to work with you. There's a difference. We want God to work for us. God wants to work with us. And I think to myself, why doesn't God just do like the really important big things, right? And then we'll do the small cleanup stuff together. Like, go deliver the people. Take the burning bush thing. It'll work. They'll go. They'll get, you know. Pharaoh will respond to a talking bush, no doubt. But God says, no. You're my important stuff. You're my important stuff. Those things, those tasks. I mean, the people, that's important, but you're, you're as important as, as that. And you are too. You're really a team with God. I think I, you should do something about that. I think I should do more about that too. And I think it's because of love. There's not a reason in the world why God would want me on his team. I'm going to tell you right now. And probably there's not a reason in the world he'd want you on, your, you on his team either. If we're that frank with each other tonight. Because I'm doing all the talking. But... Um, there's only one reason I can come up with it. He just loves you. He just flat out loves you. He loves you. But I'm not doing very well. He loves you. And he's not in love with the future version of you. He's not going to be more in love with you when, if, whatever, blank. God completely loves you today as much as he possibly could love you. 
And he will never love you less. He could not love you more. So why does he want to be a team? The only thing that makes any sense in my brain is that he loves me. And he wants to do things with me. And I'm a dad. And I go, okay. My kids were little. Megan, is when she was just a little munchkin. And Jenny and Kelly. I'd be maybe working outside around the house. Doing something, you know, somewhat physical maybe. And some of them would want to help. Maybe sometimes I'd all want to help. Which is really hard. <laughs> and... Whatever, it would, whatever I was trying to do would take longer because it would just be infinitely harder because they're in between my legs. and they're, But they don't know that. They don't know that they're not helping me. There's nothing that I would present to them that would be anything less than, this is happening so much better because you guys are here doing this with that. It made every job really more beautiful, although it was a lot harder. Why? Because I just love them. I just love them. I want to be, just want to be with him. That's the way God is. He's just like that. He's literally dying to be with you. It doesn't even make any sense. I can't make it make sense. It's just a love that goes beyond what we taste a little bit when we have kids or dear friends, spouses, family, but God's love is. It's over the top. And he wants you on his team. He wants to do things with you. And when you say, when here I am, partners with the I am. <laughs> oh man, it's an adventure. I promise you, it's amazing. And heaven will reward you forever. Let's look at the next few verses. This is probably the crux of, Je- of Exodus chapter three. Verse 13 And we'll read through verse 15. And Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Which you can just imagine what Moses is thinking about there. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, and that word Lord is super, 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 super important in the Bible. Capital L, capital O, not not capital L, small O-R-D. That's like master. Whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the name of God, Mark. Katie, Leslie, what's his name? It says his name. It's not Frank or Bob, it's Yahweh. That's God's personal name. And it's used many, many times in the Old Testament. It's complicated. I'm not going to pretend to, I'm going to show you a four minute video that explains more about Yahweh. If I tried to explain to you the names of God, you would just be scratching your head in four minutes. Like, what is that moron telling us? So I'll let these guys who are really smart tell you what Yahweh means. Watch this. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the second key word here. Lord, written in all capital letters, this is the personal name of Israel's God. We first learn the meaning of this name in the story of Moses and the burning bush in the book of Exodus chapter 3. God appears to Moses and he commissions him to liberate the Israelites from slavery. And so Moses wonders, what if people ask the name of the God who has sent me? And so God responds, tell them, Ehyeh has sent me to you. Now, that Hebrew word Echyeh means I will be. In other words, God's name means that he is the one who is and who will be. God's existence doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. This God simply is. But it will sound kind of strange for Moses to go say to the Israelites, I will be has sent me to you. Only God can say, I will be. So in the next sentence, God tells Moses the version he should say aloud, Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, he has sent me to you. Now, that word Yahweh is the ancient Hebrew form of the verb, he will be. And this is the personal name of the God of Israel. It appears over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Now, here's what's interesting. Over the centuries, Israelites wanted to honor the sacred nature of this divine name. So, as they read the Hebrew Bible aloud and they came to this name, they stopped saying Yahweh and instead started saying the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai. Now, this practice has been continued throughout the centuries. And so later, when people started translating the Bible into English, they adopted the same practice. Instead of spelling out the divine name, they translated it as Lord, spelled in all capital letters. Okay, you got that? Good, because there's more. Ancient Jewish scribes wanted to prevent anyone from even accidentally saying this name aloud when you read the Hebrew Bible. And so they came up with a visual device to remind you to make sure you say Adonai. They took the four consonant letters of the divine name. These letters correspond to our English letters Y-H-W-H. Then they inserted the three vowels from the word Adonai and combined these together to create an artificial hybrid word, which if you pronounced it, it would say Yahuwah, but no Israelite ever said Yahuwah. It's simply a visual reminder to say the word Adonai. Now, it gets more interesting. Much later, Christian scribes came along who didn't know that Yahuwah was an artificial word. And so they began to say it aloud and spell it in their writings. This is the word that eventually entered into English as Jehovah. It's a word many people still use today. But the main thing is the word Lord in all capital letters is an indication of the divine name. Don't confuse it with the word Lord in your English translations that's not in all capital letters. That is the actual Hebrew word Adon, which just means Lord or Master. This word can refer to people like kings or the master of a servant, even a shepherd over his sheep. And sometimes biblical authors will use this word to refer to God, like in the phrases the Lord of all the earth or the Lord of lords. But behind all of these words, Yehovah, Lord, Adonai, stands the original divine name of the God of Israel. It refers to the one who was, who is, and who forever will be. Understand, right? <laughs> Are you kidding me? Is that complex? My brain, I've watched that video like more times than I want to tell you. I go, I don't know, whatever, whatever that was. All I know is this. Matt will be, probably explain it much better, Justin, James, but God gave him a personal name. This very holy, amazing fire God gave him his personal name. It's like, here's my, here's my car, here's my name. 
He just kind of gave that other side to Moses because they're going to have to get to know each other. It's like that, that one you're going to sit on next to the plane for the next 12 hours. You might as well just say, okay, who are you? What's your name? My mind is, uh, because what? You're going to get to know each other. And that's what's going to happen. There's going to be this giant, giant 40 years where Moses, where Yahweh and Moses are going to hang out. Let's finish off the chapter 16 through 22. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, this will really be the word Yahweh, the Lord, L-O, okay, Yahweh, uh, where is it at? The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I observed you and of what you have done, what they have done to you, what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you out, up out of the afflictions of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Termites, and the Jebusites. A land, I love the termite joke. I love that one. So a land flowing with milk and honey. And it's not flowing with milk. We know that, right? It's just a, it's just a way of saying it's a fruitful land. Um, a land flowing with milk and honey. Da-da-da-da-da. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us and now... Please, it's just so interesting, by the way, please, that God says, God is going to work the Egyptians over, but he says, hey, Moses, when you go, just make sure you say, please, please, please let my people go. I'm thinking, all right, parents, remember, if God says to say, please, we probably should, okay, please, uh, please let us go on a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh, our God, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry for the clo- and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. We're going to talk a lot more about that in the weeks to come. So I'm not going to spend any time on it. I just want to close with two simple thoughts, if I might. A.W. Tozer says this. What comes to, listen to this, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Put that on your mirror at home. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And a couple things that come to mind when I look at this text about God that I think should be important to us is number one, Number one, God sees and God knows. God sees and God knows. He says, he says in verse seven, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. He says in verse seven, and I know they're suffering. God sees and God knows. Exodus 2.25, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So my point is simple. When nobody else sees and when nobody else knows, God does. When nobody else sees and when nobody else knows, God knows. When we're doing wrong, God sees and God knows. When we're doing right, when we're doing well, God sees, God knows. When no one understands, God sees, God knows. When no one pays attention, God sees, God knows. When we don't know what to do, God sees, God knows, and you can just keep on going. God sees and God knows. You are never alone. 
You don't even know you like God knows you and he loves you. God sees and God knows. Number two, our God has come down. I love that. See, what God said to Moses is, I have come down to deliver them. I have come down to deliver them. And he did. God really has come down. He did for Moses, but for us, he came down as a a son of man, the son of God. Philippians 2.7 says, but he made himself, Jesus, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. We couldn't go up unless he came down. We couldn't go up unless he came down. And now, and now the fire that was in the bush lives in, in us. It lives in us. That's where the fire is now. Remember the story in Luke, towards the end of Luke, two disciples, Jesus has died. They don't know that he's resurrected. They're on the road to Emmaus. Jesus kind of catches up with them. They fill him in on what's been going on. And it says, they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? See, that's where the fire is now. It's in your heart. Don't look for the bush. It's in, it's in you. It's God, it's God with us, God in us. That's so important. A.W. Tozer said this, to approach the burning bush, the journey is not one for the feet, but for the heart. To approach the burning bush, the journey is not one for the feet, but for the heart. So simply I close with this, and I wish I could say it better. And I say it to myself first, believe me, all these things. Does your heart burn within you tonight? Because those two guys said, when we're, with, when we're walking with Jesus, our hearts just burn. It's, that, it's, it's, where the, it's where God is now. Or has that burn, that, that good heartburn, <laughs> has it been quenched by sin or self? Is it a flame tonight? Or is it just an ember? Has it been rising up in these years or has it been dying down? It's never stagnant, I'll tell you that. Even as Jim was talking about on Sunday, have you left your first love? At the heart of every issue, it's an issue of the heart. Where's your heart? It's always the question God has for me. It's not that he doesn't know, by the way. It's just he questions me, so I'll ask myself where my heart is. God knows exactly where my heart's at. But if Moses' burning bush was ignited by prayer, and it was, perhaps tonight, perhaps tonight, God would reignite a flame in your heart. It won't come through groaning. It won't ignite through groaning, but it could ignite through prayer. And so Jesus, I pray that we would be a people that recognize that something so much better than what Moses experienced has happened to us. We don't look for burning bushes, Lord, because you've taken that fire and put it within us. And I pray, God, that we would be a people whose hearts burn for you. I know some of us tonight, Lord, are are doing well in our walk and our hearts do burn with passion for you, that we're all in. But Lord, there's others that that are moving away from that or maybe are stone cold, Lord, but they're never cold. There's always an ember. There's always an ember. 
because you never leave us, forsake us. So I pray, Lord, wherever we're at tonight, be it an ember or be it doing well or anything in between, that you would blow on us a fresh wind of your spirit, even tonight. And that we, Jesus, would be those that find a renewed passion for you, a hearts that burn for you. Thank you, God, for loving us like you do. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys, have a great evening.